My name is Greg Morabito. I'm Helen Rosner. And welcome to the very first episode of the Eater Upsell. Every episode, we're going to be talking to one really, really fascinating person in the world of food. And these people are people that we have really wanted to talk to, that we really want to pick their brains. It's not just your average run-of-the-mill chef or writer. We're going to get real deep. We're going to dig deep, dig up some dirt. And it's going to be awesome. And to kick off the very first episode of the Eater Upsell in a bit, we're going to have on the legend of the farm-to-table movement, a man named Dan Barber. Dan Barber. But, Greg, before we talk to Dan Barber, there's something else I want to talk to you about. I live across the street from one of the oldest diners in New York City. It's called Tom's Diner, and it's um, in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn. And it's been around since the 1930s, and it's so cool. It's, like, filled with knickknacks and the employees who all work there forever, and the family that owns it has owned it for generations. And there are lines sneaking out the door every single weekend, And I love it. I go there all the time. And here's the thing. The food is actually terrible. It's terrible. Yep. It's terrible. And I I don't care because the restaurant is amazing. Mm -hmm. So I have a a theory about this. And I, you know, there are places like this that I have in my life that I love very much as well. And um, I feel like some of them are kind of famous, you know, places that, that get written about and people go to them. And I feel like the, the word is that a lot of people go to these places and they say the food's good, though, you know, because I think that it's like a con- conflation of how special this place is. And if a place is special, then the food must be good. I think you're right. You've you've hit on this. It's um, the language that we use to talk about restaurants and their quality is almost always about the food. Mm-hmm. You know, you say, oh, man, that place is great. That means the food is really good. Yeah. And I think Tom's is great. I would say, oh, man, that place is great about Tom's. And I wouldn't mean that burger is the burger to end all burgers. What I mean is that place, the entirety of that place is great. Yeah. Um, we, sh- we should liberate ourselves from the tyranny of only measuring things by their food. Yeah, 100%. It's funny, though, because people will go to some shitty restaurant that's really hot and like a club or something or you know a place that's like a scene and think that it's cool because it's a scene or that you know it's a celebrity hangout or there's a good vibe or that's you know you go and you go with your friends and you have a party or whatever and they'll be like oh food who cares you know yeah it's like almost like some double standard or something well you want to like the food i think but it is a double standard it is It, it speaks to the the different ways that i think eating food hits us in an emotional way right you know like if you're going to a club uh, one bottle of gray goose with some like shitty cranberry juice in a carafe is just the same as any other one but you know one restaurant's mac and cheese is really different from another restaurant's mac and right cheese. you know if a place is soulful if it's rich with history that you know well then it's food must be pure of spirit and and as well. good and good yeah so that's what it is but deliciousness is not the only vector yeah yeah, exactly. I remember there was this place in Brooklyn, uh, in this neighborhood of Greenpoint, and right when I moved in there, it was like eight years ago, there was this mom-and-pop diner, kind of like Tom's, it sounds like. It was Corner Diner. It was in a million movies, and the people that ran it were like, literally in their mid-80s. Went in there, and it had all these fans in the neighborhood. They loved it. And the food was, oof. I mean, it was like not just bad, but like you see them making it, and you're like, I, I hope I don't get sick. <laughs> You know, like you see yeah. what they're doing and it's just this couple behind a counter with 
making you milkshakes and weird hamburgers and it doesn't taste good. It, it looks like, you know, they're maybe not up to up to code, up to standards. But you're participating in a story. Right. And that's magical. Yeah, these it's like your grandparents are making you something. Yeah. So anyway, I, I agree with you 100%. There's a reason to love that, and there's a reason to go there and support these places. But you, know, you can maybe admit that the food's not good, and I it's not where you go there. I, I would like to be able to be honest about yeah. it, you know? But then on, on the flip side, you have these places that give every impression of being atrocious, that are these kind of clubby restaurants, or like they have giant oversized Buddhas in the lounge, or they have like a, a 14 martini menu, none of which are actual martinis. And people will sort of make a real point of saying, but the food is actually really good. Right. The vast majority of the time that, that someone says, oh, but the food is actually really good to me about a place, it turns out it's not Never. that good. I mean, it's, it, it's not going to be bad, but right. you, know, you can't really mess up like popcorn shrimp. But there's one restaurant that really blew me away. There's a restaurant in New York called Budokan, which has Buddha right there in the name, which is like yeah. the number one douche indicator. Yep. Right? Like, if there's I, a giant Buddha... If it's in the name, if it's in the dining room. I apologize. I mean, this is this is a travesty against the entire Buddhist religion that the Buddha has become a symbol for like white douchey hedge right. funders. But Buddhacon looks like it should be terrible. It's huge, cavernous. It seats like 500 people. They filmed a scene from the Sex and the City movie there. I mean, it's in the meatpacking district. It's filled constantly with the worst humans in New York. The food is spectacular, Greg. It's so good. Mm -hmm. Like, it's legitimately not even graded on a curve against the, like, douche indicators of the restaurant. It is objectively a spectacularly good restaurant. Wow. I mean, that's very smart from a business perspective. Completely over-deliver, you know? Yeah. Where people don't expect it. They have these, these edamame dumplings that I dream about. And I know you're a huge dim sum connoisseur. This is true. Um, and... Certainly, these are more expensive than the mm -hmm. average dim sum dumpling in Chinatown or in Flushing, Queens, but they are perfect. If somebody says, I really want to go to like a douche nozzle restaurant and mm -hmm. have like a Red Bull and vodka, I know I can get a really good dumpling if we go to Budokan. Oh, man. At some point in the next few months, I'm going to tell you that I want to go to a douche nozzle restaurant. And, and I will take you to Budokan. Yes. Yes. It's going to happen, Greg. We're going to make it real. Woohoo. All right. We said Let's douche go. nozzle. So not too long ago, we talked to Chef Dan Barber, who runs Blue Hill and Blue Hill at Stone Barns. And the day that he was here in the Eater Upsell studio was the day he found out that he was nominated for not one, but two James Beard Awards. And he actually just won those Beard Awards. But he didn't know it at the time. So let's see what he had to say. How do you deal with award stuff? Uh, I mean, you've won awards, you've been nominated for a bunch, and, you know, do you get nervous about it? Do you, like, zone it out? Do you even know what, you know, are no, you aware of it? I get very haughty and arrogant. <laughs> <laughs> I get these t-shirts made. That's it. Uh, yeah, no, I don't know. I, I'm okay with, like, I, I uh, you know, it depends on the award, because some of them, like, this, the, the, the vectors all point to me, and, like, I really don't love that. I mean, of course, I, you know, I have an ego, so I'm, I'm like, does well for me, but the, the, the part that doesn't do well for me is the, like, you know, there's, there's the, the team, the family of Blue Hill, which is, which is essential to any good restaurant or any restaurant at all. It's, you know, it's all about the, the symbiotic nature of how everyone's working together and the, and everything. And, but, but you can't say it enough because it's just, the team is the, is everything. And so when I get awarded for something that I feel like, 
I deserve only a partial credit for it. So like that's you know, so that makes me feel that not upset. Complicated, right? It's all complicated. But, but the it, it was the whole restaurant. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. This one I'm I'm feeling great yeah. about because these these you know Stone Barns has been open now ten years. So uh, you know we've been working very very hard and changing the everything about the restaurant since the day we opened. We've really gone through huge uh, flux changes that just have I think improved the restaurant over time and so I'm, I'm thrilled to be recognized for it so Stone Barns 10 years old and Blue Hill Manhattan is 15, 15 years old yeah exactly yeah right on which right. in restaurant years is like a thousand <laughs> in today's world yeah I guess, I guess so yeah yeah it doesn't feel that way I mean I, the thing about it is is the change it's like we're, we're we we do I mean I do have a team that's that's hungry and and the industry itself is in flux as you know better than I do and so it's nice that we have support to try out new things and do different ideas that that keep a place alive and keep a pulse. That and, and like wasted is one example of that. But if it's really you know there's smaller examples throughout the course of a week that just end up amounting to feeling that that the place is alive. Wow. How did you get into kitchens? Did, were you, you went to culinary school. Did you work in a kitchen before that? Or? Yeah, yeah. I had worked for a while. I was just kind of like trying to make some money in college sort of thing. And I like I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do after college. And so I was still cooking because I, I actually wanted to bake bread. Last night, Nancy Silverton was a visiting chef at Wasted. She fired me from the bakery at, at La Brea Bakery <laughs> in Los Angeles in 1991 <laughs> or two or whatever. Uh, she was uh, you know, instrumental in my becoming a chef because I was really gunning for – I didn't love being – and I didn't love the whole cooking thing, and I wanted. And I was really fascinated with bread, and and I thought it was really good, and I was terrible, and so she fired me. So that's why I ended up just like cooking to to figure out what I wanted to do, and here I am. What was it about bread that attracted you? I just loved it, the it bread. I mean, I was just like a bread fiend. I sort of still am, and 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 I'm glad because in my book. You know, the third plate is actually ends up being sort of about wheat. I mean, wheat ends up if there's a main character, it sort of ends up being a character, and and it's it's the the donkey in the book. It sort of carries the story wheat because if you follow the history of wheat, you sort of follow the history of agriculture in this country, and 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 even in many ways in the Western world. So like, I was lucky that I you know I had this fascination because I had a hunger for bread, and it's to stay with me. Well, what does it mean to be? bad at bread oh yeah well i was bad it's uh, hard to be bad at bread but i, I accomplished this very well we've got a james beard award for <laughs> for bad at bread. outstandingly bad at bread and i was he i was that person was it just like i just like it was like the recipes and stuff and i was always so tired like i, I just the thing like the, the the night shift just you know to, in defense of me like i I was cooking in the mornings to earn money. I was cooking at the at Nancy's restaurant, Campanile, in the morning. So I was like a short order breakfast guy. So I was like, go from the bakery to the thing, and then and then I try and sleep in the afternoon before I had to go back to the bakery. It's just hard. It was like it was it was bad. It was it's a bad that, scene. Like, time to make the donuts, wow. kind of. Yeah, exactly. Mentality. No, that I actually woke up saying time to make the donuts. <laughs> and so when when <laughs> I did. when are I mean, we talking yeah. about here? Is this like the nineties? Yeah, early nineties. Yeah. So, so you went to L.A., but you grew up in New York City, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and I'm born and raised here, yeah. And you went to school also on the East Coast, right? Yeah, yeah. I went to Tufts University. So so I was just cooking a little bit in college. I started as a catering company in college with a friend. And, no way. And yeah, yeah. And I, we, we, we like did a lot of really cool stuff. What did you make? We, we used to do these like huge 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 parties like dinner parties and everyone would come in and like have to give 20 bucks when they entered and like and we just did these like tasting things that we passed around the room and it was great it was really great do you um, remember any of the menus uh, i remember making lots of ravioli 
Like I was like the I was like the pasta guy. So wow. bad at bread, good at pasta. Well, I, back then I was pretty good at pasta. I think we were buying the sheets of pasta, so it was really just like forming the dough. I, I, mean, I was forming the ravioli. I don't know. If I was making my own dough. I may have, but I don't, we got to be very popular, so I had to like economize. Wow. Or streamline or food process, whatever Efficiency. you call it. The efficiency. Yeah. yeah. We were okay with that. Yeah. Totally. I saw yeah. somewhere that you worked at Boulay. How did you yeah. get there? Uh, well, I went, I went to LA and then, and then, and then I was up in, in, in Berkeley and San Francisco. And then I, I came back to New York and I worked at a, a restaurant that you never heard of called Lux, which was really great at that time. This was 1990, maybe three, four. Uh, and it went out of business and I, I, I was looking for something not so long term and and Boulay I knew was going to close within a year and I thought that'd be a good place to go and he had an opening and so there I went. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Were you working with anybody that you would uh, kind of know later in life? Uh, I mean all of them. Yeah. The whole kitchen. I mean everyone through that kitchen I came a little bit late I guess but the the amount of cooks that became chefs yeah. out of Boulay Kitchen is 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 unreal. I mean it's just it's it, it's endless. His his influence is just I mean, it continues to be felt now in this, in this generation. But uh, Brian B. Strong, I worked next to, he ended up uh, working at the Harrison in New York, and now he's I got a great restaurant, working at a great restaurant out in, in Napa Valley. But but there, the Bill Yosis, I worked with, you know him. He went on to be the White House pastry chef. There are a lot of a lot of cooks in that kitchen that were were, were fantastic and and continue to be. Wow. Well, the transition from cook to chef is, I mean, it's a matter of time, but it's also sort of a matter of I don't know, mindset, I guess. There are a lot of cooks who I've met who are really happy just being cooks, who don't necessarily have the ambition to kind of become the head of an empire, whether it's running restaurants or running a brand or... Yeah. And so did well, you... Well, that much I understand. I mean, I don't... I don't. I have no interest in running a, a, an empire. No. I mean, I'm, and I'm a chef, so I still feel that way. I mean, a lot, I know a lot of chefs who are driven by that. And I think that they're, they have their own kind of genius. I mean, this is very hard to do and hard to build and getting harder to build like that. I mean, it was a little bit easier, I think, back in a couple of years ago or, or two decades ago, like Wolfgang Puck really sort of started this a little mm -hmm. bit. And, you know, the, that, that, those days might be over. I don't know. I don't know. But it's harder to, to, to form that kind of empire. It's easier to build from it. So uh, I've got a lot of chefs who keep adding restaurants um, amazingly. But also branching out in other directions, which, yeah. uh, you know, I was thinking about this this morning when I was looking at the beard results. I was really interested in the book categories because books are awesome. Yeah. And there were so many names of incredible chefs whose food I've eaten and whose ethoses I admire yeah. in the cookbook category. And then there was you in the literary food writing category. Yeah. And one of the things that's great about Third Plate is that it is an incredibly beautifully written book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that's very nice. Thank you. Well, so I spent 10 years, so I, <laughs> I really feel... For real? Good. That was 10 years yeah, in the making? a little bit more, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was. I, I really kind of slaved over every paragraph. But I think as you're... As you writers do. <laughs> well, we, we try to slave, I guess. <laughs> slave we over tweets. Yeah, Facebook right. Well, you, you, got, right <laughs> you have a 10-minute time frame, but I, I, have, I, had, I had all the time. Well, how does, how does cooking compare to writing for you? I mean, how do those two things fit into your life? You know, they're both like, I, I say this is, is, you know, it sounds sort of, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, against the grain or whatever, but I think they're so similar. And, and even though, I mean, I, both, I think they're both lonely businesses when you're at, when you're at a certain point uh, and, and being the chef, even though I just got through talking about my incredible team, uh, you know, they, in the end, they're such personal pursuits that, that 
are difficult to put into words, but become become so personalized that they carry a kind of weight that that you know you carry around with you. And and you know it's an art, it's a craft, it's both. It's it, and and then the second thing that sort of bleeds into that is it's it's physical. Like I really feel like both of them are fully physical. Like I've I, I've never heard anyone say writing is physical, but I I learned that. I felt like the discipline to sit and to to write for many hours. And I usually never got a good paragraph off until I was sitting for many hours. It was really hard for me. I was really hard, really hard. And so I, I, I'm amazed that the two things could, on the face of it, you know, they look very different and, and appeal to different senses. But in, in the end game, I think they, they require a tremendous amount of discipline. How do you balance that with, you know, the two restaurants yeah. in two different cities? I mean, do you have? I like got into a good routine. You know, yeah. I got into a really good routine. I mean, I, I like, you know, I've never said this before, but I don't know why I'm thinking about it now. But I remember coming home from Boulay, uh, I've never actually talked about this before, but I, but I came, I remember one night I came home from Boulay at like four in the morning after incredible service. We were cleaning the kitchen forever. And there was a, th that's when the Food Network had just kind of started and it just started. And Anthony Bourdain was interviewed by Alan Richmond. I'll never forget this. Uh, and I forgot what the name of the show was, but he had just written a book. Um, and I don't know what book that was actually at that 1993 or whatever or four, and, and he was talking, and so Alan asked the same question, how do you do it, how do you be a chef, and how do you write, and of course, I was interested in writing, so I was like, you know, I perked up at four in the morning, and I was like, and he was like, you know, I, I woke up at four in the morning every day, and I wrote, and then I went to work, and, and I just got into this routine where I did it four in the morning, and when I started writing this book, like Anthony Bourdain, as you know, Anthony Bourdain, it's like, if Anthony Bourdain can do that, can wake up at four o'clock in the morning with his, his crazy nightlife that he was leading and whatever, like I could probably wake up at six o'clock in the morning and get this thing done. And it took a lot longer than I thought it would take. Obviously it took about double or triple the amount of time <laughs> I thought it would take, but, but you know, I got used to waking up very early and starting the day very early and going on, on less sleep, which, you know, ended up, uh, I don't know. I, I ended wow. up being able to do it, but I, but I, I'm not crediting Anthony Bourdain, although I love him and he's an amazing uh, uh, writer himself. But uh, but he did give me this sort of sense of like it's not impossible to do it, and and it stayed with me. So here we are. There's this mug that one of my friends has that this coffee mug, and it says, "You have the same number of hours in the day as Beyonce." <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's brilliant. I feel like it's the same <laughs> idea. You yeah. know, there yeah. are 24 usable hours. Yeah, day. it's sort of the discipline, though, isn't it? I mean, it's like, it's it, how much do you want it? You know, how much do you want the thing done? How much do you, you know, and it's just sort of trite to say it, but like you, you end up getting as much done as you, all, you, you have the time to do it, sort of. It's like, and so it's very easy to say, you know, I've got 30 emails and take, you know, an hour to do the 30 emails. And it's also, you know, possible to do those 30 emails in 15 minutes. We all had that experience. We're like, huh, I used to take so long to do this and now I don't have the time and I actually get it done. And like, you know, that's how I started. I, I was really very good about thinking about that at least. I'm not saying I followed that. I'm not, look, I, I, every day I came to the restaurant, you know, at 7.30 in the morning I was there and, and I usually was falling asleep in the first five <laughs> minutes and on the floor asleep. So I, I'm, I'm not saying I'm like a, I'm anything to 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 write home about, but but you know you think you have limits, and you you you're, it's it's amazing how far you can surpass them if you put your mind to it. Did so, your cooking change while you were writing? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, my cooking's kind of always changing, so I, I so that's you know it's like I was saying, it's just always in flux. So I started to realize from the and this is how how sort of wasted too came to the thing. It's like 
I started to learn a lot more about historic cuisine. I mean, the cuisines, about the, the history of cuisines, which I, you know, I didn't know anything about. And I just, how they evolved. And, and of course, they all evolved differently. But if there's a through line, it's that they came out of this hardship of the landscape. It was like, it was like you were just trying to figure out how to eke out what the land could provide and then make it, you know, nutritious or delicious or whatever. And like, that's the history of all great cuisines of the world. It's just this terrible negotiations, heart-wrenching, you know, disastrous negotiation in many cases. But, but ultimately, the ones that survive, the ones we call cuisines today, are the ones that are truly sustainable because they've lasted thousands of years. By definition, what else is sustainable unless it lasted thousands of years? So, and delicious, because why else would they have lasted if they're not delicious? So that informed a lot of the book, and it sort of informed how I cooked, which, 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 which Wasted came out of, because it was, it was sort of like, you know, how do you utilize the whole farm, the whole farm, not just the cherry picking of ingredients at the farmer's market and call yourself a farm table chef, which was me for many <laughs> years, you know, but how do you look at the, how do you look at a food system? And, and as a chef, you have this opportunity to put a lot of the pieces together and, and fill the holes and, and make things, you know, take advantage of and create a culture around, uh, around eating that, 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 that creates a pattern of eating that, that, you know, that, that is what a cuisine is. It's hard. There's no other word for it. It's a cuisine that, that, drives against our worst kind of hedonism you know that's what in america we don't have that we have this, this we, the, the history of american agriculture was so different than ever it was like it was often another planetary system it was like this garden of eden that we came over to and we had all this fertility and we had rainfall and we had these incredible grasslands and so we produced a ton of food and we were never forced into that negotiation that the peasants were forced into and so we didn't utilize waste uh and today we call it waste but if you the lesson of wasted is if you go back in the history of cuisine they they utilize the waste. They didn't call it waste, you know. Coco van is a rooster. That's waste in the <laughs> right. American agriculture. It becomes dog food. In in France, it becomes coco van. They braise it in wine to tenderize it, and it becomes an iconic French dish. That's that's true of almost every dish that's a part of of the great cuisines of the world. So that's what we I think we need to get to with American cooking. Uh, Sorry for the long answer, but it's you know my no. book's also five hundred pages. I mean, it's a <laughs> now big you know why question. it took me ten years to write the damn thing. I think that's that the foods that that are not waste, but that we sort of think of as waste, like yeah. stuff like coco van. Historically, that's not restaurant food. It's home cooking. So it's, it's fascinating that's to right. me to sort that's of take right. this restaurant angle. Yeah. No, I, that you hit it on the head. I mean, it's just the history of restaurants. Not that. You're right. But today, it can be, or it could be, or it is. I mean, but all of it. It depends. I mean, look at, look at Noma. Look at uh, Massimo Batura in Italy. Look at Sean Brock. Look at uh, Alex at, in, in San Paolo. I mean, there's all these incredible chefs you know, looking at their region, their landscape, and not cherry-picking. A lot of them are looking back at what is traditional and, and reinterpreting in a modern context. But, but when they do that, they're looking between the, between the rows, in other words. You know, that you, we have the expression nose-to-tail eating in, in for the farm-to-table movement. But really what we're talking about is nose-to-tail eating of the whole farm and that, and that nose-to-tail eating of the vegetable. You know, it's what we're doing at Wasted, but what every chef is doing on their menu. Uh, it's the, in the DNA of a chef actually to do that. And I think, you know, the, the, the purpose of waste or the, or, or the idea of the third plate is to wear it on our sleeve a little bit more. And that's what these chefs are doing. I am not a leader of that at all. I'm, I'm, I'm following actually what many chefs have, have, have boldly gone to that I, I was too shy to do, uh, actually. Do you think it's working? I mean, I think that the, I, I think that what all of these chefs are doing is really, really exciting in terms of the way that they're looking at their landscapes and the way yeah. that they're sort of bringing everything into their kitchens. But then there's the second half of the transaction, which is the way they present what they find to their diners yeah. and whether the diners are actually going home having received the message that the chef yeah, wants them to get. That's a good question. 
that's the you know I don't know what, what well uh, maybe it's too too early to tell maybe we, we we look back on this in in years but there's but to, to, it is not exaggeration to say that that there is a revolution happening in fine dining that the, that 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 the idea of fine dining is being turned on its head uh, you know look ten years ago lobster caviar foie gras was you you had to have that in a high end restaurant you know a lot of these chefs came around Renee being among the more famous examples there are a lot of others that said they won't have it because it's not an expression of where they are. And that became the call card. Uh, you know, that is, you know, that is, t they are tethered to something in history that, that defines a, a group of people, a, a nation. I mean, you know, it's hard with Renee. It's like you're, you're, you're tethering yourself to Vikings. I don't know what Viking cuisine looks like. <laughs> Vikings like herring. But, it's very but, hot right now, yeah. Yeah, but, but it's very hot because he, he was smart to, 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 to take, the, to, to attach himself to something in history and then reinterpret it. And then you're free. You know, but in America, what, what, you know, that's the challenge of my cooking. Is what, am I, what am I tethered to? I'm tethered to a lot of great products, but, but not a pattern. You know, California cuisine is not a cuisine. Because California has only been around for 100 years. Yeah, well, that too. But it's a bunch of, I got in a lot of trouble saying that in L.A. <laughs> I, the woman stood up. I was in a terrible mood. She I, stood up and she's like, well, let me tell you about California cuisine. And I just interrupted her. I was like, what? what is, can, you, can you explain to me what is California cuisine? I don't, what is it? It's a bunch of great products where you, you had virgin soil and tons of sunshine and, and everlasting amounts of water flowing from what you did. You know, and like that's not sustainable, and and it's not inculcating itself into the culture and pattern of of, of the everyday food diet. Um, you know, the everyday food diet for America is a protein centric. It's a steak dinner. Yeah, that's what it is. So so we need to flip down its head. And, it's, and to your point, I think it's a big one. Is that you know where it used to come from the home cooks, and and bleed into the culture today. It's gonna it's coming from chefs, and and restaurants are places of of this kind of connection and broadcasting this message, whether it's soft or hard in your face. I don't know. Your waist is a little, little hard in your face, but, but do you leave there and say, you know, I leave Renee's restaurant and say, I want to cook with ants. Nah, I don't know. But, but, but you, you, you get a different sense of what's possible. And, and it's, I think a lot more uh, approachable, maybe the ant example aside, but it's a lot more approachable than lobster caviar and foie gras. And, 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 and it, in that sense, it's it, it makes the restaurants a paradigm of 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 you know cultural importance at the moment, and that's you know that's what restaurants have become. So, with the wasted pop up, what was the inspiration to make it collaborative? You know, not just just because of everything I've actually it's everything I've just said is, is what what why I would say you know wasted couldn't be called Blue Hill because mm -hmm. all these chefs are doing it. Like I'm not do I am doing it, I'm, but I actually don't think I'm doing it enough. <laughs> so it was like part of that too is like that. When I say it, I'm saying like they're looking at the the nose to tail of the vegetable, and they're you know they're they're putting it in a ravioli and selling it for seventeen dollars. Yesterday's you know vegetables, is, but they don't call it wasted ravioli. They call it ravioli with da -da -da sauce, and it's seventeen dollars. Wow. But so we you know we have our we have our pasta interpretation, but we're calling it for what it is. We're wearing it on our sleeve, and that, that that's a new idea. That's a new take on it. But mm -hmm. but all the ideas are the same. It's unbelievable. Every every day, it's almost comical, like bad comedy. Every chef that's visit we have one every day i've i've come to sort of proudly with like a kind of twist on something that i thought you know i had kind of invented for example the other night we were serving skate wings uh on the on the on the menu skate cartilage so after the meat is removed that's cart, funny right yeah so just just <laughs> the bones uh that are fried we, we make them into the shape of potato uh, what do you call it? french fries and we serve it as tartar sauce 
So, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty psyched about this because I thought, you know, we, we really figured it out. And I went to Danny Bowen, who was there that night, and I showed him the dish, and he said he gave me the Cantonese word for it. <laughs> like it's in, it's in all these dishes in Canada. I had the same experience with I, we're making these burger buns from from we're making these burgers from from the leftover pulp from Liquiteria's juice, and Paula at Balthazar is making us these buns from rehydrated old bread. I mean, the buns are incredible, but they're from old buns, right? Wow. I mean, it's incredible, right? I thought it was like the most fucking brilliant invention, and then and then I brought over Dominique Cantel. I was in the middle of explaining it to him. He said, oh, yeah, my grandmother used to make those for me every morning for breakfast with a little milk and sugar. <laughs> it's like, but, and I said the same thing with Dan Hum with this broth. He's like, oh, my grandmother used to make that. It's like, wow. There, it's, it's, it shows you that there's nothing new in None the world. Of it's it's new. Now I feel new. like I'm going to start looking at menus being like, can you spot the waste or like, you and, you, and you will be able to if you, I, 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 I totally subscribe to that because I, I'm thinking of it now in a different way because I'm, I'm, I've now trained myself the last couple of months. Well, I think yeah. there, there used to be this spate of articles where it was like, the ways restaurants are trying to fuck you over and it was like never order their frittata at brunch but it's like no of course order the exactly. frittata like exactly. help them help yeah. them use everything that's a great that's, I'm gonna use that <laughs> that's right that's right well we used to be very it's, it goes with the thing we used to be very shy about it. we are still very we're too shy about right. it and in fact we should be wearing it on our sleeve that's why it's an industry event and I didn't want to call it waste and my brother and my sister-in-law felt the same way we wanted this to be who are my co-owners we wanted this to be you know industry and wanted all to share in what we do every day and push it well, I think wasted is fun, though, because as a word, it means a lot of different things. And yeah. it's exciting to reclaim it and to kind of yeah. give it a positive connotation. I mean, it's financially efficient, it's environmentally sustainable, and it tastes really, really good. Yeah, it puts into action what is a, what, thank you, but it puts into action what is a, what feels like an overwhelming problem. It's nice to, you know, it's, it's relatively easy to, 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 for me to sit here and say, we're such a wasteful society. America's <laughs> so wasteful, and I can give you the stats, and we can be done. And then, you know, the conversation will last about, or, or the impact will last as long as this conversation. You know, you'll probably use less uh, paper towels at lunch today, but like, you know, where does that go? So, so that's the opportunity of restaurants increasingly, is that we have this, we, we, we somehow we have this bully pulpit chefs, you know, I don't know where it came from, yeah. cultural icons, I have no idea, like it's just, it's, it's you know, used to be churches. Uh, and now it's chefs. <laughs> now it's chefs a little bit, I, I guess, <laughs> I mean, I, it's obviously it overstates it, of course, um, but I mean it to overstate it because maybe we're headed in a direction where, you know, the power of, of not, it's not the chef who talks, who writes the book, it's the chef who cooks the menu. I think who has the so it's not about the power of I'm articulating these ideas because I have a bully pulpit I'm you know I'm Mr. Rockefeller's uh, you know Stonebarn Center for Food and Agriculture I'm supposed to be talking about this stuff but it, most chefs as Dan Hum said to me when when he was cooking I don't really want to deal directly with these issues I just want to cook well right that's right because what, <laughs> in cooking in especially in this way and the ways that he was talking about you're changing the world because you're affecting you're you're inculcating culture and it, you're you're affecting culture and if you if you don't do that. All of the stuff, all of the shit, bad stuff that's going on, it just doesn't matter because it, if, if it doesn't become part of the everyday food culture and if it doesn't, if it doesn't translate into something that's fun and hedonistic and, and feels lively, then forget it. And so that's why I feel so – the, the, that wasn't the goal of Wasted, but I honestly coming out of it, I'm most happy about that. It's like it feels fun, and, and, or at least in the dining room, not to me. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm always miserable. But it, the dining room is very fun, and, and there's a good energy in that, in that I think is – as important as the quality of the food. Awesome. So we have a few questions slightly unrelated to that. It's something we like to call the lightning round. Oh, shit. 
This is when we really get to know Boxers you, Dan. Boxers are brief, so that kind of thing. That's, Only that's you, not on here. If you um, want to volunteer eh, that, we nah, can. But nah. My first question for you is, what is your favorite TV show? Oh, shit. You know, I loved Breaking Bad, but I don't watch TV. I, I my, my wife, like... You know, but sometimes I'll come home a little bit earlier from the restaurant. This was a while ago, a long time ago. But she she would download these this Breaking Bad. I just thought it was unreal. I was so fixated. It's on awesome. It. Have you seen the new one, Better Call Saul? No, no. It's How good. is it? It's great. Yeah, yeah. It's a little more whimsical. Anyway, I like that. Just the right yeah. touch of whimsy. Yeah, good. Um, when you travel, what is your airport vice? Uh, no burritos. I love burritos when I'm traveling. What a great, uh, I just think that's the greatest food in the world. I don't know. I do don't find it like no no good burrito, you know. Do you eat a burrito on the plane? <laughs> I do, yeah. It's I good really plane do. food. Right? Yeah. The best. So if you weren't a chef and writer, what would you yeah. be? If, oh, if I wasn't a writer? Yeah. Oh, shit, yeah. Um, yeah, gosh, I don't know. What, were the, what the hell was it? Let me skip that one and think about it. Give me another one. <laughs> right. What's your favorite form of social media? Oh God! I I only know one form. Like that could tweeting. be your favorite. Okay, there it is. Tweeting. Tweeting. What's your Twitter handle? I have no idea. <laughs> I think it's at Dan Barber, yeah, right? Dan Barber. But I do tweet, but I, I do it with my with someone who does it with me, and so I but I get into collaborative. It. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. No, there's no Sorry, shame I don't in know that. my handle. That's okay. This right. is the last question. Uh, what album do you blast on a road trip? You're driving down the highway. Nobody nobody else is in the car. You can sing along. You don't have to sing You know what? I'm going to tell you something. This is like, this is a very personal thing, but like I've kind of stopped listening to music. Although I have to say Wasted has changed my mind. I'll tell you why. But I stopped listening to music many years ago because I, I used to listen to music so much in college. And like, I, I you know, I, I don't know. There's, there's something happened with me where I, I have to listen to new music and I, I haven't gotten into new music. When I listen to anything that's old, anything I've heard before, forget it. I'm a wreck. I just like, I, I get very nostalgic and like, I'm very tied to like the, the, the lyrics and the thing. And I just get the, it brings me right back to the moment when I first heard it or second or whatever. So like I used to listen to Bob, Bob Dylan a lot and like I hear him now and I just like, I, I have to shut it off. <laughs> but that wasted all of a sudden got me in because I think that my brother did a soundtrack for, for wasted for the, for, you know, we, we pumped up the music a lot for this pop up, but they're all uh, cuts that never made onto albums. So he, he went, they're to wasted, the, music. wasted, wasted music. Yeah. Awesome. And no one knows that, but I, I like, we don't advertise it, but, uh, but <laughs> It's great. That's like, a major reveal right there. Yeah, thanks, man. You guys got the scoop. But it's <laughs> yeah, I think it's like it's great. Like and 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 I love going out the day. So all the cooks are serving and, and I'm serving every night. We're we're serving all the tables. And I just like it's great. It's it's a fucking love music. It's great. I gotta get back into it. That's my that's my resolution for afterwards. I'm gonna start so you gotta give me some some people to listen to. Well know. hey Dan Barber, thanks so much for uh, thanks, dropping by the Eater Upsell. Thanks. The Eater Upsell. I the Eater that. Upsell. That's it. Next time on the Eater Upsell, Helen and I will talk with Michael Solomonov of Zahav in Philadelphia. There's a new episode every other Monday morning. If you're not already a subscriber, search your podcast app for the Eater Upsell or go to iTunes.com slash Eater Upsell. And as always, you can visit Eater.com where you can find more episodes, read transcripts, and all sorts of other cool stuff. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in beautiful Midtown Manhattan. Our producer is Maureen Giannone. Our editor is Dion Lee. Our studio team is Will Bukema, Alex Ulrich, Mark Paradise. Our editor-in-chief is Amanda Klute. I'm Helen Rosner, and that guy is Greg Morabito. Thanks for listening.